0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, last time we spoke to our next guest,
1: we talked about why grocery stores weren't freezing prices to win over customers. Lo and behold, weeks later, guess what grocery stores are doing? And that's why we're back talking with Sylvain Charlebois, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Good morning. Good morning, so you were you were very prescient with this, like you predicted this would start happening.
2: Well, it was happening elsewhere around the world. <laughs> I guess it, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a matter of time. I mean seriously, the the pressure was was real. Uh, Ottawa uh, is now looking into this. Uh, I suspect that uh, uh, grocery grocers will be summoned. I've been summoned uh, to testify next week myself. And so, yeah, the pressure's on. And tomorrow, of course, we'll hear more from Statistics Canada about where the inflation rate is and what's going on with food prices. So, And every month, uh, grocers uh, were fielding a barrage of criticism. So something had to be done. Uh, PR-wise.
1: Right. When and so you,
2: I'm not surprised that Loblaw really went ahead and, and did this.
1: Right. So Loblaw's being the latest, sending a letter out to, you know, customers in an ad saying we are going to freeze prices on their no-name products, right, to help out Canadians. You said you're testifying uh, for this. What is the government looking at here?
2: Uh, I don't know. So I, I've testified uh, before uh, the Senate Committee on Agriculture oh, at least seven or eight times in my during my career and every time is different and uh of course as an academic uh, I I'm, I'm asked different questions about what's going on uh I, I have uh, provided some of my uh recommendations the last few weeks to uh to the committee to parliament asking them to look beyond uh the grocery business uh, we do believe that there may be some issues up the food chain because when you look at uh, financial statements of grocers particularly we fail to see any evidence of greed inflation at all or abuse I know a lot of people do believe that grocers are responsible for food inflation we just don't see that in the data and so but we, we do question some verticals like dairy meat um, and and bakery as well, so we are concerned about inflated costs right. up the food chain.
1: Okay, so are you saying that you can't really find out where the inflation and the higher prices are coming from?
2: Well, each vertical will have its own story. So in dairy, for example, we do have some suspicions in production, for example, with the cane Dairy Commission. We actually believe that some of the recommendations to increase farm gate milk prices are, uh, are inflated, and uh, and because the math doesn't doesn't add up, and uh, with beef, it's in packing and processing. We actually think because of of some of the consolidation that we've seen in recent years, there's too much power given to two major players, which are not Canadian owned. And so, those are the kinds of things that we need need to look into. As um, you know, I, we I'm hoping that Kimmy would actually look into.
1: Wow. Okay. So in the meantime, do you see other grocery stores and chains responding to these consumer concerns by saying, okay, we understand it. Yes, maybe the prices, they've gone a little too high too fast.
2: Well, I think that both Empire Sobe's and Metro panicked yesterday and they actually tried to figure out a a response because all many reporters were calling them. But Metro's response was a bit of a head scratcher last night. They basically... Said in their statement that it is industry practice to freeze prices of privately labeled products for three months during the winter, during the holiday season. And I and I went when I when I heard that on CTV, I said, "Wait a second, that sounds like collusion." <laughs> <laughs> and I and I I actually contacted CTV. Said, Can I see like the statement in writing? And that's exactly I actually posted on Twitter. Uh, last night and uh, honestly it, the metro statement is incriminating not only for metro but for the entire sector. If it is true, uh, that's a problem. I mean, we're going back to uh, the bread price fixing scandal days.
1: Okay, maybe and you can explain uh, think, that. Sylvain, can you explain that a little bit to people then? Why is that a concern? Why is that a problem?
2: If it is, it, if, if an industry practice gets people to fix prices, that's illegal in Canada. You cannot collude and work uh, with other grocers to set prices or or freeze prices together at the same time. That's illegal.
1: So it sets a price. That's what Metro right? is
2: suggesting. Okay.
1: Hmm. All right. So yeah. you, Will that be? I actually at?
2: posted the exact statement on my Twitter account, and you can look it up. Is it's quite disturbing. When I saw that, I said, mm, "This is this is going to be a problem for the sector."
1: Huh. It's almost like they don't know how to respond, though, Sylvan. Right. It's like they're kind of grasping at straws here.
2: I think between you and I, I think what happened is that it is common practice to actually freeze prices amongst grocers, but they never thought of the legality of, of the practice itself. They actually shared the statement with media, for goodness sake, with media, with the bread price fixing scandal. Grocers were very careful not to share anything with media, but Metro wanted to undermine, was desperate to undermine Loblaw's campaign. So they said, well, it's not a big deal because we freeze prices anyhow. Oh, really?
1: Okay. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. so That's what, what happened. So what can consumers expect out of all this? Uh,
2: predictability i think uh a lot of people have asked me well are we going to save money i don't know uh, because we never know what's going to happen to food inflation but we don't think that food prices are going to drop uh they may increase so i think i think law boss campaign is going to provide uh some peace of mind for people looking for deals you'll know for the next three and a half months how much you're going to pay for certain products and that's 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 important nowadays, especially with the inflation rate at ten percent. And 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 keep in mind that the campaign is actually actually covers the very lucrative holiday season, right. and that's that's twenty percent of of Loblaws' revenue. So I, I think it's going to help people at least budget a little bit.
1: Interesting. So, ben, thank you.
2: My no problem. Take care.
1: That is Sylvain Charlebois, the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, talking about the freezing of grocery store prices. The chains seem to have caught on to this now, but Sylvain is raising some concerns about that too. But I'm wondering, do you shop around? Like, where are you going to try to find the lowest price? Or are you just going to your regular store and and just looking for the stuff that you hope is on sale this week? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. I think everybody is kind of finding different ways of trying to cope with all this.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, that's it. I
1: genuinely love that song so much. I also love Halloween. Uh, Very happy to see all the decorations going up over the past few days. Let's find out what's happening in Raji
3: Sohal's neighborhood. Good morning. Hi, Simi. I also really, really love Halloween so much and look forward to the decorations. And my kids and I have this now it's like a daily ritual where at night uh, because it's getting darker earlier we go out and we look for more decorations that we haven't seen yet and people in our neighborhood get really into it which i love there are several neighborhoods on the north shore that just go all out but one of them went a little too far so the north van rcmp were called to the neighborhood of edgemont Because there was a scene there at one of the houses, their decorations, depicting a very realistic scene of a suicide. So what happened was a passerby saw what was a seven second scene of what looked like a man donning a noose around his neck and hanging himself. And then Uh, the passengers in her car, they called 911. She ran to the door. But by the time she got to the door, Simi, the scene had changed to uh, one of a woman murdering a man. And then later zombies. (laughs) Oh, my God. I shouldn't even
1: laugh at this because it sounds like like remember the movie Home Alone when he was trying to make it look like there's a party going on in his house. But this is obviously (laughs) taken to a different extreme. On the one hand, I guess when you're setting it up, you're thinking this is the greatest, you know, Halloween decoration of all time. Not so much when it triggers people who are going by the house.
3: Yeah, for sure. There was a story last year, I don't know if you recall it, but there was a man in Kelowna who set up a realistic scene on his front lawn. And it was even more frightening because it was what looked like a real person, like it was clothing, very realistic looking clothing and a person hanging from a rope from a tree. And I thought that was just in terribly poor taste. I think what happens is, you know, very creative people that really love Halloween, they're like, oh, it's time to show off our artistry with crafts, right? And then they go to this like painstaking level of detail, which for the rest of us can sometimes be disturbing.
1: Yes, perhaps, it. you know, when you're into Halloween stuff, you are into it, which is, you know, I applaud that. That's great. But you're right. Not everybody is. So that's not going to be their first thought when they see this. But I would imagine that even if the police did come, Raji, there's nothing they can do about this.
3: I guess knock on the door. You know the the thing with uh, the scenario last year in Kelowna is the gentleman whose house it was when he got bugged about it by the police and his neighbors too, who said we don't want this kind of thing in our neighborhood. Halloween's supposed to be for kids. It's supposed to be fun. This is actually scary, and actually for some people triggering. Right, um, but uh, he pushed back, and I think in this case the person's probably you know, in this neighborhood, I'm, my guess is that it, it's not a big deal for them to change uh, the the Halloween decorations, make them less frightening. But there was also, I don't know if you remember this, where last year I went to a very scary oh, I remember haunted this. house yes. and I recorded the audio yes. for you guys <laughs> and listeners. Yes. Simi, there were people screaming for their lives in the I background it and it was, was hilarious. They were legitimately frightened. And at one point, um, some clown... <laughs> Now clowns Fantastic. are very frightening. So they the scariest. Came up behind me and touched my shoulder and I just got goosebumps right now remembering how frightening that was for me. So, I I actually appreciate the effort, but uh, there's a little bit of a line there.
1: I think some people love being scared and for others not so much. It's hard to get that balance, but this time of year, I know some people like to go all out. So here's what I'm going to say, Raji is like I would love it if people out there sent us pictures just of great houses or, you know, scary decorations perhaps that they're going to see in the next couple of weeks leading up to Halloween? Because that would be kind of fun, right? To see those.
3: Oh, I love it. And this year we actually ordered inflatables, which I used to be against. Yes. I, and now I'm fully, fully on board. We got this one that's like, I don't know, 10,000 feet tall. It's a, (laughs) it's a, (laughs) it's a phantom and I just, I love it. Love I was it. asking the kids if we could, you know, keep it up for Christmas, maybe just put like a Grinch hat on it or something. Fantastic!
1: I love the, uh, the graveyard in the front yard with the hands coming up out of the ground. I saw that at two different houses yesterday and it just put a huge smile on my face as I was walking around with the dog looking at all these Halloween decorations. So yes, I would love to see more. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Would love to see it in your neighborhood. So if there's a house that has just a great Halloween decorations, if you can, I don't need the address or anything like that. Just take a picture and show me what it's like. Send it to me, Simi, at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, the weather is going to change this weekend. We know that, and perhaps it will start bringing snow to some of the interior mountains. They're certainly hoping that at Big White, but here's the thing. They've got a lot of other issues that Big White is facing right now, stuff that they have never seen happen before. And we're going to hear all about that now with Michael J. Ballingall, who's the Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort. Michael, thanks for being back with us.
4: Good morning and happy Halloween.
1: <laughs> Thank you for that. I know you're looking past that, right, to when the season might open, but this sounds like it's a bit of a catch 22 for you guys this year. What's going on?
4: Yeah, our, our biggest problem now uh, we faced, uh, of course, during the pandemic, we couldn't find enough staff. And now with the borders opening and the visas becoming available for Australians, New Zealanders, people from Great Britain being able to come and work in the mountain resorts of British Columbia. Um, we can't find enough beds for them because during the pandemic, 30% of our accommodation changed hands. That's the, the the last generation selling their their family homes, their cabins, their condos, their fourplexes, and the new generation that bought it want to use it. And and normally those beds were made available on a percentage basis for staff to rent from the Lyft company, because we guaranteed maintenance, painting, we guaranteed the income, the check always arrived. You didn't, didn't have to go collect the rent from the employees. We did that all for you. And those uh, investors are now gone. There is no massive amount of accommodation available for the, the workers. As a matter of fact, there's zero. Today, the vacancy rate at Big White is actually zero. And we're, we're actually going behind. We're starting to lose beds. And it's really because of of the way that the tourism economy has has changed. Airbnb, VRBO are much more popular than they've ever been before. Before the pandemic, Big White had probably about 12 to 15 Airbnbs. We now have over 400. And and these are are young people that have invested in accommodation. They can use it when they want to use it, and then they put it onto Airbnb when they don't want to use it. So I'm kind of torn because I, I need those beds for the economy of Big White for the tourists, but I also need a certain percentage of beds for the people that serve the tourist ministries, who who make your coffee, make your beds, our ski instructors, our chefs, dishwashers, um, all those people
1: that we rely on from the
4: commercial bed base.
1: So what are you going to do then? How can you hire people to come and work at Big White this winter if there's no place for them to stay?
4: Well, we have just over five hundred beds in, in our in our establishment that that we have um, that we have invested in and and developed over the course of the last couple of years. So we have about sixty percent of our workforce already in beds. It's that next forty percent. Do we open night scheme? That takes eighty beds to open night scheme. Do, do I have a rental of ice skates for the skating rink? That's another six beds. So we're now starting to look at what what is. The absolute necessary, so lift operators, ski patrol, ski instructors, groomer drivers, th- those are all very necessary parts of running our business. We guarantee that they have beds. It's that second shift of, of, of a restaurant for breakfast or lunch or, or lunch and dinner that we're very concerned about if we don't find the bed base. We have an advertising program out there in the market. Most of our beds are owned by private citizens in Vancouver and the central Okanagan so we're we're looking at uh hopefully being able to convince some of those investors rent to us and don't rent to um the tourists and and we can have a great mix of uh tourists and and renters in the resort
1: okay, so that sounds like you're you're hopeful on that front, but you'll have to adjust like restaurant by restaurant or item by item whether or not you've got staffing to open those things
4: a hundred percent and 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 that's what's really been happening in in the hospitality tourist industry uh, all throughout, um, whether it's North America, Vancouver, Vancouver Island, um, other resort communities, um, we've had to adjust. The pandemic has taught us how to do uh, business differently because it's not the same old, same old. And it's not only is it hard to find staff, um, you know, paying the living wage, that's one thing that we're committed to. But when the accommodation, it's expensive, but when it's not even available, um, we're, we're looking at maybe bringing in a camp, a workers' camp from northern B.C. That's 100 beds. But in order to install that, I've got to take up 84 parking facilities uh, at the resort. And, of course, we're a busy resort. We're the second busy resort in B.C. I need all my parking spaces at Christmas holidays, on weekends. So these these are things that uh, that we're we're meeting on and discussing on a daily basis.
1: So the demand is there though, isn't it Michael? Like for people to come to Big White, would you say it's as as busy as it's ever been?
4: Yeah, I'm going to tell your listeners that Vancouver has been booking Christmas and 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 New Year's like they never have before and normally Vancouver doesn't book until there's snow on the Lower Mainland mountains. Well, during the pandemic, they've got a taste of a Big White, so they're now starting to come. Australia's coming back. Europe's coming back Uh, our nonstop flights now from Toronto are back online to Kelowna so Ontario's coming back and and we have a very huge component of our of our uh, skiers that come from the central Okanagan we've just finished our season's pass drive that's been very successful we're going to be a busy mountain we just need to find the beds to house the staff because I can't I can't shuttle them from Kelowna there's no beds in Kelowna either. Right. Because UBCO took all the beds. You know, they're, 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 the, the bed base in Kelowna is very small as well. And okay, so, so then, there's not a simple answer.
1: Yeah, so what do you do here? So do you plan for next year and the year after? Like, clearly something has to be done.
4: Oh, We we have already begun uh, plans to build more accommodation. As a lift company, um, we can get the land from the government and, and we can do that. And we have great plans to continue to do that. We have great staff housing that we own. It's just that as we expand um when we before the pandemic we had 1200 employees during the pandemic that went down to 400 to 500 because that's all that was required now we're somewhere um around 800 employees right now it would be really nice to get to a thousand um because it you know a lot of people don't want to work overtime they don't want to work um 10 hour shifts uh five to six days a week um they want to enjoy the mountains as well so we we, we're looking for part-time and Ski instructors as waiters. And if you've got a bed, you've got a job. So we're trying to find people that uh, want to work
1: more hours out there. What a challenge there. Okay, so then, Michael, what is also your message to people who want to come to Big White uh, in the near future?
4: Well, what we have found is that, you know, people are now booking online, VRBO, Airbnb.
1: They're booking through our central reservations.
4: I can still sell you a bed in the middle of the village before Christmas at Big White for $79. You know, we're one of the most affordable mountains that you'll find anywhere in North America. The Coquihalla Highway is going to be open again this river. I mean, this time last year, we're in, in, in Kelowna right now. We haven't had rain for over 100 days. This time last year, we are worried about the atmospheric river. Uh, patterns have changed, but there's one thing we do know. The snow will fly at beautiful Big White Ski Resort, and our mountains in British Columbia will host British Columbians and people from around the world, and the tourism industry will do very well. You just might have to wait a little bit longer for your latte or your
1: right. your pink donut. This year in the mountains.: <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Michael, thank you very much for your time. Have a good day and, and watch out for that sea fox fox. Thank you for that. I will. That thing is scary. That is Michael J. Ballingall, Senior Vice President at Big White Ski Resort, talking about what they're really having is an unprecedented housing crunch right now for staff. And they need some help with that. Uh, you know, they need people to rent out their place to staff or just kind of pitch in a little bit and definitely need to focus on the next couple of years, too. If you want to weigh in, simmy at com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: I think at this point we're all hoping, waiting for the rain to start falling. Now looking at the weather forecast that is supposed to happen at the end of this week, that is certainly good news for places like the Sunshine Coast where it has become so dry there. Officials are taking some big steps to protect the remaining drinking water supply. So they'll be turning off the taps on non-essential businesses and places. Well, they say non-essential, but for pools, for breweries for cannabis operators, that is going to be tough. And one of the big businesses in that area up in Gibson's happens to be Persephone Brewing and their CEO and co-owner Brian Smith joins us now. Good morning, Brian. Good
5: morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. I know you're traveling right now. So thanks for making the time. Uh, Let me ask you, how is this order going to affect your business?
5: Well, you know, you can imagine we're, we just found out yesterday, and so we're just figuring out sort of what the ins and outs are. But as far as we can tell, what we know for sure is we've stopped brewing, so can't make beer, uh, you know, is the first, you know, most significant change. Our tasting room can stay open and we can sell through the inventory we have, but no new production. And then, you know, the cascading impacts, uh, we are just starting to get our heads around
1: Right, so that, I mean, hopefully the rain will come this week, but even if you stop production for a couple of days, what kind of an impact does that have?
5: Yeah, I I mean, I think uh, less than a week, if we we do actually get rain by the end of this week and it's significant enough for to turn off this restriction, uh, we'll be okay, we'll be just fine. Our inventory, inventory will carry us through. Anything longer than that, we'll start getting into some real problems. And the fact is, I think even with the... Uh, you know, the forecast of some rain, it probably isn't going to be enough. So we're starting to plan for, you know, a longer hiatus than anybody would like.
1: Yeah. How do you plan for that, Brian? What kind of an impact is that longer hiatus?
5: Well, uh, you can imagine uh, we're starting to think about options. Uh, We're too big of a brewery to realistically bring water in, you know, from off the coast. So likely we're going to be reaching out to some of our brothers and sister breweries and in, in regions that have more sustainable sources of water uh, and see if they can help us with some contract brewing and that kind of thing. But, but I think what's important is that we keep coming back to the, you know, the, the crux of the issue, which is insufficient uh, infrastructure in the face of climate change.
1: Right. So does this go, is this going to require then, Brian, perhaps a rethink even in the future about how your business works?
5: So, uh, you know, we're definitely, we've been thinking about this for a few years. Several of the last, you know, 10 years that we've been operating have been long drought seasons. And we've been thinking about drilling a well uh, on our property um, and just haven't had the money. So we're actively raising money right now. And one of those uses of funds is to drill our own well to address this issue. But again, I think it comes back to a bigger, you know, discussion that needs to be had, you know, especially at the policy level of, how do we make sure we have the infrastructure to sustain communities like ours?
1: Right. OK, so for now, it sounds like do you think you'll have enough supply, a little bit of stock to last for the next little while?
5: We're going to make do. Uh, we are most of your listeners will remember we're, we're no stranger to adversity. And so yes. we'll, you know, we'll problem solve our way through this uh, and be just fine. Um, and if anything, it's a great opportunity for us all to be really kind of wrestling with the challenges of climate and so on.
1: It'll certainly hit people when they hear that beer is threatened, I think, Brian. That definitely hits home to a lot of people. Uh, Listen, thank you so much. Best of luck.
5: Sure. All right. Thanks very much.
1: Appreciate that. That is Brian Smith. He's the co-owner and CEO of Persephone Brewing. Uh, That is located in Gibson's, of course, up on the Sunshine Coast. And you heard them say it. They're going to have to stop brewing essentially at least for the next couple of days to find out what is going on here because they are part of the watering the water restrictions in that area where non-essential businesses have to shut off the taps and he was saying even even with the rain coming this weekend it's not going to be enough for them to get fully back up and running but this is clearly something they're going to have to address on a longer term issue there i mean it's true tell people that the beer is going to be affected and they all of a sudden they're going to be like wait a minute what are you saying and i think that's why this is also generating a lot of attention is all right yes turning off the taps is one thing but these are local businesses that are very important to their communities and they are having some real issues with these drought conditions so hopefully the rain starts to come soon and the delay will only be a short one This is Mornings
0: with Simi. We were just
1: talking about a severe staff housing crunch at Big White that is really going to kind of limit what they can do in terms of what's open, what's not, what they can serve, what they can't serve coming up for the ski and snowboard season. It just kind of illustrates the challenge so many businesses have right now in, in attracting employees, and in some cases, maybe retaining employees. Well, maybe they should check out what this next business owner is doing. Uh, this is really fascinating. This is Jason Kelland, who is joining us now. Jason is an a franchise owner over on Vancouver Island. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. How many employees do you have?
6: Uh, out of that location we have around uh, 25 26 uh, we do have another location that's a little less staffed but uh yeah if anyone wants to join the team
1: oh okay so so, so <laughs> you are also looking for more employees is that tough these days uh,
6: well i think it depends on the uh, demographic of the area um schooling uh, rental accommodation all kinds of uh, different factors
1: right so you also it sounds like have some long time employees too
6: we have a lot of long time employees, particularly out of the Ladysmith location. Um, we took over the store in 2010, and uh, still have employees uh, from when we took up.
1: Really? So you've kept people for what more than 12 years?
6: 12 years. That's right. Yeah.
1: That's pretty impressive. Is that normal for like running a, a franchise like that, or especially in fast food?
6: Well, I think that's what uh, made us come up with the idea. We were reaching our 10-year anniversary and. Uh, and uh, we realized that we had three employees that had been with us since the get-go. And we thought, you know, these people are extremely valuable to us. The guests know them. They uh, create that trust between the customer and uh, and the store because the guest knows what they're getting. We, you know, the, a lot of the, the staff know the guests' names at that point. And not only that, but of course, with being in the company for as long as they have, they know pretty much every position.
1: Right. You can trust and, them.
6: Uh, yeah, they they become super valuable to you.
1: Okay, so then what what are you doing to recognize that for them?
6: Well, so we we thought, well, let's do something special. Uh, we realized a lot of them hadn't actually been out of the country, let alone Vancouver Island. And, um, you know, it's one thing to give somebody money in this day and age. You just fritter it away on all kinds of different things. Um, so let's give them an experience that they're never going to forget. And so we decided to send them to an all-inclusive paid vacation um to celebrate their their 10 years with us
1: that's amazing so they're getting an all inclusive like a, everything paid for vacation what was the reaction from your employees when they heard about this
6: well they were super excited of course and they almost didn't believe it um the, the best thing that happened of course is uh, this was just coming into the into COVID um when we when we first decided on it so only one of our staff members actually managed to go um Subsequent to that, we've had another employee hit their 10 years, who happens to be a relation to one of the initial reciprocants. And so um, they're now going as a whole family in November to uh, Mexico for all-inclusive. And as I say, we we didn't want them to have any burden, uh, to have to pay any bills. Uh, All they really got to do is get to the airport.
1: Okay, this is so nice, but you realize, of course, Jason, you've set a precedent here too, Right.
6: Well, I, I hope so. You know, um, I feel that uh, if some if an employee has been with your business for 10 years, they're an extremely valuable part of your business. Um, and they must be doing a good job because they're still there. Um, and they need to be rewarded. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you is essentially our motto on that. Um, I recall being the person working the floor, thinking, wow, these guys must be making lots of money, which is a fallacy. <laughs> but um, uh, I would like to be treated um, as such. And, uh, you know, so when we got into a position that we were able to do it, uh, we wanted to make sure we were passing down the experience.
1: Right. That is so nice then. So, Jason, is this something that you can see yourself doing long term? When uh, There's so many questions these days about being able to retain valuable employees. You want to make sure you can right. do that. Do you think, OK, I, I'm, I'm starting something here?
6: Well, I hope so. This is a policy we're going to keep in our business. In fact, any business that we get into. Um, because we see the value in it. Uh, we have a very much a family environment in our in our store. And I think that just comes from the staff knowing that we care about them. And um, it just gives them peace of mind that we are always looking out for their best interest. And as a result, of course, they do the same for us, which oh. is good for business.
1: That is good for business and good for people, too. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for this. Uh, good luck with us.
6: And I, I put a challenge out there to all business owners, you know, take care of your staff and they'll take care of your business. Boy. Um, we really have to treat people as people.
1: Uh, you know what? And I uh, would agree with you completely. Have you heard from other businesses on this?
6: Uh, a few other ANW operators. In fact, I have heard. Yeah, we've had a, an astounding response. And, um, you know, I just, again, I hope the message goes out there. Uh, it's, it's super important.
1: I think a lot of employees would agree with you. They would love it if this message <laughs> got out there too. Jason, thank you for your time you 're welcome, thank you for giving me the opportunity. That is Jason Kelland. He owns a couple of a and w s over on Vancouver Island, and for his long term employees they 've been with him for more than ten years, uh, he is giving them an all inclusive paid vacation to thank them for their service to his business. What a great idea, you know and he as he said, he challenges other businesses to treat people like people. All right, business owners out there. I mean, maybe you're an employee who had your your business owner, your boss, salute you in some great way that you really appreciated. Let's hear those stories. Simi at CKNW.com. I uh, would love to hear from you on that for sure. This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: So we've been talking about the change that many cities have affected with the way people voted, right, on Saturday, Vancouver, Surrey. I mean, those are big changes that are coming to those cities. But what happened over on the North Shore? Well, we're going to find out now with the help of our contributor, Raji Sohal. Good morning.
3: Hi, Simi. Yeah, I found this election so interesting, especially when we think in terms of, you know, we don't really talk about it, but in terms of left and right, progressive and conservative views. And when you look at all the races in B.C., I think crime, safety, mental health, these were the dominant stories in most cities and municipalities, right? Like Vancouver, Kelowna, where folks said that the, the status quo is not working. We really want change. Well, for the North Shore, there were different motivating factors for voters on who they decided on, and they wanted overall less change, like less change to their little societies. And I think it was uh, pretty predictable, the results, actually. The city of North Vancouver re-elected Mayor Linda Buchanan and her opponent, Guy Haywood, he did not quite get enough supporters behind him for the kinds of change that he wanted to see. But really, the message from residents was that they were happy with Mayor Buchanan's experience, her track record of leadership over the pandemic. And then Mayor Mike Little in the district also got reelected for a second term. Yes, yeah, so interesting. And he he actually beat his opponent by a slim margin of 322 votes. And the uh, newly elected to council, Catherine Pope and Herman Ma, um, I think that they got in because they they sure were knocking on doors. They knocked on doors early. They were consistent and persistent. And then in West Van, this was interesting. So Mark Sager beat his predecessor, Marianne Booth. Now, they have actually faced off before. Sager lost to Ms. Booth in 2018 by only 21 votes. And Sager, who's uh, he's a lawyer by trade, he served as West Van's mayor from 1990 to 1996. So a big change up there. But in a way, voters were actually you know, thinking, hey, we've tried and tested this before. Let's give him another chance to go for it. And I asked Mayor-elect Mark Sager about his priorities.
7: Just making sure that we're, we're going to hit the ground running uh, early in November.
3: Tell me what motivated you in the first place to jump back into local politics.
7: Well, I just love our community. I love West Vancouver. Uh, I just feel incredibly grateful for the wonderful place we get to call home. And I was aware that there was a reasonable degree of unhappiness in the community and just felt felt I'd like to jump in and see if I can help. And well, I mean, we've we've got to make some headway on, on our transportation issues. We need to work cooperatively with with all the mayors around the metro table and certainly with the province and perhaps even the federal government to recognize that we're putting an awful lot of people uh, across the North Shore and um, we've, got, we've just got to address the bottlenecks that take place. We have to make sure when new developments come forward or presented that they're in keeping with our char- the character of our community. Uh, we want to make sure when we're dealing with issues for the environment that they're, you know, we're making meaningful and corrective steps. And, and in that regard, I'm really happy to, to, with a couple of people who I hope to empo- appoint to our new environmental commission. Uh, who are really expert in this field um, and uh, just want to see if we can make things better.
3: Simi, I want to point out something there that he said regarding development, and that was he wants to keep things in the character of our community. That is what people are voting for. They're voting for, uh, you know, no big change to development, to the way that their neighborhood looks, and that's really interesting because, uh, you know, some people have rallied against that exact kind of view. And then also uh, for less change overall in the neighborhood, but I think the pressing issue here is transportation. This was uh, big for him in his campaign. It's the most pressing problem in West Van. And now I know you know this because you tell me about when you have to drive anywhere on the shore and, and there's always the, the ramps Traffic. off of the Lions Gate. Brutal. Traffic is, it's brutal, right? And anywhere on that long marine drive, there's uh, often just several points, major congestion. And predecessor Marianne Booth, she was a very forward thinking on this issue. She tried hard to get support for rapid transit. But ultimately, Simi, I think that is what did not get her reelected. And I asked Mayor-elect Mark Sager about his stance on the transport issues on the North Shore.
7: And we need to look for things that will help uh, in the really near term. Um, And that's what I was meeting with uh, Mayor Mike Little with this morning, uh, just trying to get a lay of the land, understand what resources are available.
3: Yeah, so one of your things that you ran on is, uh, you you called it Realistic Transportation Solutions. So what does that mean to you?
7: Well, um, one of the things we need to do, West Vancouver, because of our topography, it's really difficult for a lot of people to utilize our blue buses, which are wonderful. Um, You know, we have a main line that runs along Marine Drive, and we have some hillside routes, but they're hard to get to. And so I'm proposing uh, a micro transit solution to try and get people, you know, out of their cars and, and actually use the bus lines. And if we can get people down the hill, get them from the more remote parts of our, our community onto the main line, I think we need better transit to and from uh, Squamish. There's a lot of people commuting in from there. And I'd really like to work with CN. I mean, this is going to take some some exploratory work, but to look at that uh, train line that's really underutilized. In Japan, they put buses on the train lines. I, I don't know why we don't do that here.
1: You know, Raji, it's so interesting how times change, because 10 years ago, there was discussion of a a beeline that would, you know, go from West Vancouver to the far end of the North Shore, and back again. And there was so much controversy over it. In fact, they ended up getting that defeated, because they didn't want to dedicate the space to the beeline. And so I thought, of course, we're having transit and traffic troubles on the North Shore, because you know what, stuff like this didn't go through 10 years ago.
3: Well, you have this situation on the North Shore where people complain constantly about how hard it is to get from point A to B. Then on the other hand, Simi, they don't welcome change, yeah. the kinds of change and solution that would bring about, uh, you know, fluidity on those streets. And the situation with traffic is so bad on the North Shore, North, uh, District of North Van, City of North Van and West Vancouver, that this really was the number one issue for many, many voters. And I was saying off the top of this uh, chat with you that um, elsewhere in B.C., people were talking about different issues, right? People were voting on issues, for example, like crime. Crime was a really big one. People weren't talking about that here in North Van um, or in West Van nearly as much. And so uh, it's it continues to be a bit of a microcosm in B.C., and I am so curious to see how the next uh, several yeah. months and years are going to pan out in terms of, of change in our province.
1: Yeah, we'll see if those issues, the transit issue, really becomes a bigger one for them. Uh, Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. So Raji Sohal there, if you want to weigh in, Simmy at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi change. I think we can agree that was the message that many voters wanted to send on the weekend in Vancouver. It's been heard loud and clear with a major change underway in the local government. The mayor-elect Ken Sim and his ABC team say they won't be wasting any time so let's find out what that means. The mayor-elect of Vancouver, Ken Sim joins us now. Thank you for being here.
8: Hi Simi, thank you uh, for having me.
1: Well tell me, what was the message that, that you think that meant? That bringing you and your team to power, What did that? what did you hear? Um... Well,
8: I, I think the residents of Vancouver gave us a very strong message, saying that they, uh, you know, they wanted change. They believed in our ninety-four point platform that we published, and um, they wanted us to uh, make it happen. So uh, that's exactly what we're going to
1: do. Okay, so how do you start? Where do you start?
8: Well, we actually started about twelve hours after uh, our celebration uh, on Sunday. We put our uh, we, we met as a transition team. Uh, And that team includes uh, former mayor of Surrey, Diane Watts. She's also a former uh, member of Parliament. Uh, Former uh, city deputy uh, manager, uh, James Ridge, um, our campaign uh, manager, uh, Tung Chan, who was a former councillor, and our, uh, all of our elected uh, officials uh, on council plus our campaign team with the goal of mapping out, uh, you know, a four-year work plan to uh, uh, roll out, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the 94 points. But also, you know, setting up meetings with all the different, um, you know, um, mayors in the region and our uh, provincial and federal um, leaders as well.
1: There are three councillors on council who are not part of ABC, uh, Christine Boyle, and of course, Adrian Carr and Pete Fry. We spoke with Adrian Carr yesterday and she talked about, you know, that she'll see herself as more of the opposition, but you've already reached out to her. So what is your philosophy with that?
8: I, I, look, I, I love uh, diversity of thought, and we actually have diversity of thought, uh, um, in our own team already. Uh, I don't see our council as being ABC or Green or One City. I see 10 or actually 11 counselors, myself included in that chamber. And we are looking at the challenges uh, that face Vancouver. And collectively, we're going to you know, bring voices, uh, different voices to the table, but we're going to collectively solve them. So uh, we all represent the City of Vancouver. We represent all the residents. And that's how we're going to run our office.
1: What about the homeless encampment issue, right? We talked about public safety. What is going to change in your approach to dealing with what we see on the streets when it comes to the unhoused?
8: Yeah. So uh, there's a uh, there's two things. Obviously, um, you know, we talked a lot about the uh, 100 police officers and 100 uh, um, mental health nurses, and that helps us sort of stabilize the situation. But uh, really, when we're talking about uh, the housing, these are provincial and federal issues. And um, we're going to have a united voice uh, and a strong voice uh, with the province and the federal government that uh, we've identified the issues. We're going to work collaboratively with them um, to help us solve these challenges. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you're talking about mental health issues, that's that's a healthcare issue. That's uh, the province, and they really have to step up. And I know they they want to as well. And then when it comes to housing, you know, provincial and federal. And uh, we've actually been speaking with the Prime Minister's Office, and you know, we're we're really excited because they want to step up as well. So we look forward to addressing these issues.
1: Right? How is that different from what we heard the last four years? Though, will people notice a difference on the streets?
8: I. On the public safety uh, side of things, I hope uh, we start to see a change um, quickly. Um, and it, it, it will progress over time. Like uh, we talked about hiring 100 police officers, officers and 100 nurses, but that's not going to happen, you know, next Tuesday. It will take a bit of time, but you will see progress there. I think the big difference is, uh, you know, I think the province and the federal government took note that um, there was a resounding statement that was sent throughout Vancouver that people want change and they're tired of you know the the you know the feeling of safety has gone down on our streets they're tired of seeing you know uh, marginalized communities uh being unhoused and dealing with a whole bunch of issues and um you know i i think we have a, a way bigger voice now because uh, you know we, we basically ran the table with all of our elected officials on this mandate
1: so you've talked about more police, I think more mental health supports, which everybody thinks that's a great idea. What about an increase in bylaw enforcement?
8: Well, it, it really depends on what the bylaws are. Um, you know, uh, you know, if we're talking about small businesses, um, you know, I, some of the bylaws I think that are com- completely ridiculous is, let's say, um, a local business uh, gets tagged. You know, there's graffiti that hits something. Right. Uh the fact that the city of vancouver charges a fine of 500 dollars if that um you know uh, business doesn't take care of that it's ridiculous you're actually uh penalizing the victim uh, even more so those are things that we have to relook at um when it comes to you know the, the housing of uh, marginalized communities you know it's uh we have to make sure whatever we do is completely empathetic and it makes sure that we take care of people while we have the long-term longer-term solutions um you know, people, people are already dealing with enough challenges right now. Uh, we have to give people viable options before we can even think about, you know, some of these bylaws.
1: Uh, we talked to Sarah Kirby-Young yesterday, too, and she was mentioning how there is a, a hope that you can bring some order, like make make those meetings a bit shorter when it comes to council meetings, make them more efficient. Do you see that happening, too?
8: Absolutely. And so you just look at um, our mandate right now, Um, you know, call it a majority or whatever, but the reality is uh, the city of Vancouver sent a strong message on our 94 uh, point plan. Um, We've already been in contact with uh, uh, city staff, city manager, and they're looking at rolling it out. Um, So we have clarity as to the direction of our city. And so right there, Versus, uh, you know, the last council, you had seven um, different voices, you know, when you have mayor and all the different parties being represented, pulling staff in literally a 100 directions, studying a bunch of uh, things, reviewing things. No, we have a clearer direction for the city. And I think not only will it make the council meetings a lot more efficient, um, it'll also um, provide relief to city staff um, because they have a hard job and uh, this makes it easier and it's a lot more clear.
1: Right. You've also talked about, you know, finding some places to, you know, find some uh, spending cuts, essentially some places to save money within the budget to fund some of these priorities. So what is the process going to be like for that about finding those savings in the budget? And what does that mean?
8: Yeah, uh, we can approach that maybe six different ways, but uh, you know I, I'm still not uh, in the the chamber yet. But as soon as we get in there, we will be looking through the financial statements uh, on a line by line basis. Um, now, these savings, you know, for example, when when you look at uh, uh, the 100 police officers and 100 mental health nurses, we priced the size of that investment at 20 million dollars a year, which represents less than one percent of the overall budget when you account the capital portion. I have yet to see a government anywhere on the history uh, of the planet that didn't have at least 1% uh, you know, uh, cost savings somewhere without affecting service levels whatsoever. So if you can show me uh, a place uh, on the planet where a government is super efficient, where you can't find those savings, um, I'd like to hear about it. So right. we, feel really, we, we feel really confident that we're going to find these uh, things. It, at the end of the day, it, it comes down to prioritization. So the example I like to give is, look, we're, we're going to find somewhere that we're going to spend a million dollars on furniture. Right. Uh, right, like... What are we prioritizing uh, furniture over public safety and, you know, uh, people suffering on our streets? Um, if you ask me all day long, I would, you know, I would focus on taking care of people on the streets and deal with public safety versus, you know, a furniture upgrade.
1: You mentioned on, on Saturday night in your speech that this was the longest job interview you'd ever had to get a job. Um, you know, what, was, is there anything surprising to you now that you've got the job or, or are you, you're excited about this?
8: I'm super excited about uh, about this, um, not only for myself, but we have an amazing team and we all have clarity of purpose. We want to, you know, um, get Vancouver to be the best city on the planet again. And um, this is our opportunity. And so, you know, a, a great example is we didn't wait till November 7th to, you know, walk into office and then, you know, figure things out. Literally the Sunday, right after the celebration, or about 10, 10, 12 hours after the celebration, we were hard at work working on transition.
1: And so you're going to hit the ground running on November 7th? Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
8: Great. Thank you.